Welcome, Ipsa Dixit listeners. My name is John Paul Hicks. I'm your guest host this episode, and I'll be interviewing Brian Fry. Uh, Brian, how are you doing today? Good, John Paul. It's great to talk to you. Well, this is a, a lot of fun, and uh, I know it's going to be a little bit of a uh, unique episode in the sense that uh, we get to interview, or I get to interview you, and we get to hear uh, your thoughts uh, on some things. Uh, related to uh, plagiarism and, and kind of how you got to those views. Uh, so I'd really like to start, um, just dive right in if that works for you. Sure, absolutely. We'll make it a uh, coronavirus special, as it were. Perfect. Yeah, maybe we should give the listeners a little context uh, on uh, where we're uh, recording this, kind of the, the times. Uh, we're in a uh, voluntary quarantine right now. Uh, the date we're recording this is uh, March 19th, 2020. Uh, and we're in the middle of spring break and uh, we've just been told that we're moving to all online classes. So uh, anything to add to that? Hmm. No, nothing other than uh, I'm looking forward to trying out a new modality for content delivery, as it were, in my uh, law school classes. I guess we'll see how it works out. Fantastic. Uh, well, let's dive right in. Uh, I'd really like to start um, at your time uh, at I, I, you went to undergrad at Berkeley, is that right? Sure. Yep. UC what, Berkeley. What was the decision uh, to go there? I know you're from uh, the area. Did you have any kind of uh, underlying desire to go there? Yeah. So I grew up in Santa Rosa, California, which is a uh, the kind of the county. Well, it's not the county seat, but it's like the largest town, the largest city in Sonoma County, which is a couple counties north of of San Francisco, and. Um, and when I graduated from from college, my father told me that I could go to any college I wanted to as long as it was UC Berkeley. <laughs> so, well, it's a good thing you got in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think I think that could have been generalized to anywhere in the UC system. Essentially, uh, back in the early '90s when I went to the UC, um, it was very inexpensive by sure. comparison to other schools, especially for California residents. So it was largely a cost saving measure. But it worked out great. It's a, it's a good school. I really enjoyed it. Um, I was there for a little under three years and uh, I really had a good experience. So you graduated in uh, two and a half years? Yeah, two and a half years. Yeah, I took a lot of summer classes and, you know, you, you could take up to, I think it was 20 credits a semester maximum. And, you know, at the time, at least I kind of looked at that as well. If I, extra credits are free, then I may as well take them. Sure. Uh, uh, well, that's very economical and fits right in with uh, with your dad's kind of instruction there as uh, uh, kind of a cost saving measure. Yeah. Um, so what uh, what did you study while you were there? Uh, so I did a minor in film studies, which was a group major uh, in like uh, comparative literature, rhetoric, English, et cetera. So it was like classes in a bunch of different departments and basically anything that said film on it counted toward the major. And then I did a, a minor in philosophy as well. Okay. And uh, did did you have any idea going in? Uh, that that is what you wanted to kind of do? Or, or did you take an elective and find out, hey, this is kind of interesting. I have kind of a natural talent in this. Uh, mm. I'd like to pursue this a little more. Yeah. I mean, when I was younger, I, I, I kind of thought I would pursue more of a science background, but I got really into, I got really into film when I was in high school. A, uh, a good friend of mine 
in high school, Dan Martinico, uh, went to this summer program that called a California State Summer School for the Arts, where he took classes with a bunch of kind of interesting art filmmakers, including Valerie So, as I recall, among other people. Anyway, so he came back from that having made these videos that were kind of super weird art films. And when he showed them to me, my reaction was sort of like, oh my God, I didn't know you could, you were allowed to do that as it were. (laughs) So I, you know, I went out and bought a bunch of stuff, including, um, most notably, I got copies of uh, Sergei Eisenstein, the uh, famous Russian director from the twenties and thirties. I got his two books translated into English, uh, Film Form and Film Sense, where he sort of described his theories of film editing. Uh, but, you know, it being the late 80s, um, that, that very late 80s, that kind of stuff wasn't really available to rent really in Santa Rosa, or at least I didn't know where to go to get it. And so I had to kind of imagine what his movies would look like based on his descriptions of them. Okay. And then started making films or well, mostly videos at that point, but then later I started making Super 8 films when I got to UC Berkeley as well. Okay. Um, so I got, I got really into that. So you kind of you're kind of cultivating this interest in uh, producing uh, work, uh, producing art, as it were, uh, and and that kind of started early on. Um, is that is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of it, it, an a develop an interest that developed when I was in in high school and kind of blossomed from there. So I started making films on film as soon as I got to UC Berkeley. Uh, they didn't really have a film production department. Well, they didn't really, they didn't period have a film production department at UC Berkeley at all. They had a couple cameras in a closet, but no one was real excited about students using them. Um, so I, I ended up picking up most of my own stuff and uh, getting a hold of surplus 16 millimeter film and shooting some stuff. So I was sort of making movies on my own wherewithal while I was doing kind of academic film studies. And then And when I graduated from Berkeley in December of 94, I I didn't know what I was going to do next. And so I sent out, I gotten really into experimental, the new new American cinema, you know, American experimental filmmaking, taking classes with like Ernie Kier, uh, among other people who was teaching an American avant-garde film class. And Kathy Garretts was sort of my main mentor. She was the experimental film programmer at Pacific Film Archive. So I sent out two applications, uh, one to the master's slash PhD program in uh, cinema studies at NYU and one to the MFA program in filmmaking at uh, San Francisco Art Institute. And I just figured I'd get into whichever one accepted me. Um, turned out they both did, but the Art Institute accepted me first. And I was like, more excited about that. So I went there immediately after graduating from Berkeley and started in January of 95 and kind of kind of fully directed myself toward filmmaking at that point. And that's in uh, New York, is that right? No, no. San Francisco Art Institute was in, in San Francisco. So NYU oh. also accepted me. I ended up going there later, but uh, ultimately dropping out my first time I went to NYU because I just okay. wasn't interested in the field of study, it turned out. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, let, let, let's get back to that. Sorry, I messed up there. Let's yeah. uh, let's go back to uh, 
the Art Institute in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, so you go immediately after graduating in uh, December 94, mm-hmm. right into uh, Masters of Fine Arts uh, program in San Francisco. Yep. Uh, and is that, uh, did, is it what you thought it would be? Is it, uh, was it kind of, kind of getting your creative juices flowing? Were you satisfied with what you were doing? Oh yeah. I had a great time. I mean, you know, art school is expensive, probably more expensive than it should have been, but I'd saved a lot of money in undergrad graduating so quickly and living real cheap. So, uh, I kind of felt like it wasn't the end of the world. Um, and it was very kind of free form kind of program. I was probably a little young for it. I mean, I was 20 when I started my master's program. Um, But, uh, you know, the classes were a lot of fun. They, at that point in time, they had a lot of really interesting people who were either permanent faculty members in film or who were visiting from other places. So I got to take classes with a lot of people I was really interested in, um, people like like filmmaker Martin Arnold, uh, Guy Sherwin, Barbara Meter, you know, Steve Anker, Ernie Keir, you know, you name it, a bunch a bunch of really interesting uh, people. Uh, George Kuchar, who's a uh, teaching assistant I was for many years, Larry Jordan, or Lawrence Jordan, he calls himself now, still actually around. Um, anyway, a bunch of really interesting people were, were teaching there. And so I, I really enjoyed the classes, got a lot out of them. And uh, the program was really just geared to like give you as much opportunity to make movies as as possible. So I mean, I just churned out a huge amount of of film while I was there, just trying a bunch of different things and seeing what I found interesting. And sort of, kind of, I, I had a real habit of learning about other film. Uh, other the way other filmmakers approached filmmaking and trying to imagine what they were doing and then recreate what their films without ever having seen them and the results were always kind of interesting because it turned out that you know the film I imagined rarely looked all that much like the film they actually made um but I guess in retrospect it kind of plays into my um my interest in plagiarism, right? So, I mean, the entire film practice was really a form of artistic plagiarism. Um, And I think most art is really about plagiarism at the end of the day. It's about copying things that you love so much that you want to make them your own. So you mentioned you had a lot of influences uh, during your time at the Art Institute. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just have a couple of questions about those. Mm -hmm. Did any of them, uh, have you, are you still in touch with any of them today? Do you still, uh, keep in contact with any of them? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, so Steve Anker uh, taught a lot of the classes I was really interested in and also was the director of the San Francisco Cinematheque at the time. So he's now, he was the dean, I believe, of Cal Arts for a while. He's a professor there now, I think. Um, so I've you know, talked to him occasionally. Um, George Kuchar, unfortunately, passed away quite a few years ago. Um, Lawrence Jordan is still around. I haven't talked to him in a while, but um, I'm sort of circuitously still in touch with him through Canyon cinema, which he was involved with for many years. Um, you know, Martin Arnold, I haven't talked to in a while, you know, but I mean, like I, I, I'm still in the same circles with all those people, you know, and when it comes down to it, I mean, you know, the experimental film community is relatively close knit, um, although global. Uh, but one thing that doesn't include a lot of is lawyers. Um, so I'm, I'm basically the only lawyer that any experimental filmmakers know. So anytime there's a problem that anyone has a problem, like a law related problem in that or question or anything in that world, they call me directly. Or if anyone has a problem and asks a friend, what do I do? They say, Oh, call Brian. He's the person to talk to. Um, <laughs> so I mean, probably once a week I get contacted by someone from the film world who's got a question or something like that. 
I think I've heard you say before you have a thriving uh, pro bono I do, practice. I do. It's, 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 it's amazing how easy it is to collect pro bono clients. Um, sure. Uh, okay. So uh, while your time there, you met a lot of influential people. Uh, what are some of the kind of specific uh, kind of lessons you learned or techniques or even uh, thoughts about plagiarism uh, or, or anything kind of along those lines uh, while you're creating all these films that you took from these influences? Did Is there a specific instance or kind of a specific theme that kind of stuck with you during this time that you kind of later took with you? Yeah. I mean, so I would say like one big influence on me both at Berkeley and then much more so when I was in art school and then kind of developing in subsequent years, I was as I was working in the art world as a programmer, a writer, and a, an artist, was the Fluxus movement of the 1960s. And in particular, uh, its kind of founder slash figurehead, George Machunas, who was a Lithuanian artist and a very close friend of Jonas Mekas, who was the sadly recently departed um, founder and director of Anthology Film Archive. So Fluxus was an art movement, um, kind of a loosely knit art movement that was really about like kind of almost, it was like conceptual art without the pretense right so um okay. really about kind of trying to engage with it the experience of the world and producing art as a byproduct of living in the world and so you know different artists interpreted that in a lot of different ways today probably the best known fluxus artist is is yoko ono um but a lot of other artists were kind of tangentially affiliated um you know warhol was close friends with a lot of fluxus people um Namjoon Peak was uh, affiliated with Fluxus. Uh, George Machunas himself produced a lot of really interesting artwork, Ben Vaudier. I mean, there's just a ton of really interesting artists who were affiliated with with that movement. And, and I think that kind of ethos really um, spoke to me, that kind of not taking yourself too seriously and um, not being too precious about what it is that you do and just kind of enjoying the process of creating whatever it is you create. And I think increasingly um, what I'm really interested in doing is trying to see if and how I can turn legal scholarship into a form of art practice. Um, and it really hit me like my friend, my old friend from law school, Emily Bremer, observed the other day that in her opinion, I was uh, an artist whose medium was legal scholarship. And I'm really doing my best to take that to heart. Sure. Uh, so not taking yourself too seriously uh, and the legal profession don't seem to uh, to mix real well. That seems kind of like oil and water. Um, so let, let's go, uh, before we take the jump to, to when you decided, decided to go to law school, mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you finished film school mm -hmm. in San Francisco. Yep. What's the next step? What, what was kind of on your radar there? What, what did you, uh, what did you see as like the next, uh, the next thing? Yeah. I mean, I spent the summer kind of hanging out in San Francisco and then part of the summer anyway. And then immediately, uh, I, I sort of, as art school was winding up, I reapplied to NYU to the same to the same graduate program. And so uh, in the fall of 95, or sorry, in the fall of 97, um, I started uh, a graduate program in cinema studies at, at NYU. So I moved to, to New York City, um, which was an interesting experience. You know, I was basically destitute um, and just going on loans 
and the couple bucks in my pocket. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and, and I, I mentioned to you this anecdote. I really, it was sort of said a lot to me. So, you know, like I arrived in, in New York, you know, flew in to, to New York and was taking the subway to the apartment on Roosevelt city, uh, that belonged to a friend of a friend who was going to let me stay there while I looked for my own place to live. And, um, being relatively new to the city, although I visited several times, I plotted out my route without realizing that when I took the A train, um, up into Manhattan, I was going to have to go through the, I was going to try to transfer, you know, to the, to the sixth Avenue line. And I, I didn't realize fully that there was a tunnel connecting the two stops. And I was traveling with like two suitcases containing everything I owned, which included several like very heavy movie cameras and reels of motion picture film, which I brought more of <laughs> along with me sure. than I did clothing, to be honest. Um, so I was like walking through this tunnel, just dragging, like I could barely make it with these two massively heavy suitcases. And it was rush hour and people going back and forth everywhere. And I kind of just stopped, I kind of had to stop for a minute and put one of them down, put them both down to catch my breath. And a fella in a suit was walking down, briskly walking down the down the tunnel, and he just picked up one of the suitcases and started walking along with me. And when we got to the subway uh, at the other end, he just put it down and said, "Welcome to New York," and walked away, which was really kind of a cool like introduction to New York City and the way at least a certain kind of feel of the city sort of always had to me, like you know. People have a, uh, in some ways are really distant, but in other ways can be really generous as well. Sure. If you told me that story would have happened, I would have thought, oh, uh, without naming the city, I would have thought, oh, he's probably in Omaha, Nebraska, or, uh, you know, somewhere in middle America. But when you say that happened in New York, mm. uh, and it was a, a guy dressed up in a suit and kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't know, to me, that kind of uh, shows me that, uh no matter who you are, what position you're in, uh, you're still able to help someone else in need, uh, which is uh, some of the things I think uh, you've kind of taken um, and and uh, not only done as a teacher, uh, but also kind of helped uh, your students with, especially with one of the plagiarism projects I'm working on currently. Um, but did did you did that have an impact on your life, or is that just kind of a funny kind of one off story? Well, I mean, I, I think it just it stuck with me because it was such an interesting moment and an experience that I wasn't expecting, but that also really said something to me about the feeling of living in a city like New York, which is such a kind of transnational kind of node of activity. I mean, like you said, like in some ways we think of that kind of generosity as being a very kind of middle America, like you said, Omaha, Nebraska, which I kind of liked as, you know, I was just there and I know that you have, have family in, in Omaha. When Omaha yeah, my wife's yeah, from there. Yeah. yeah, absolutely lovely place. I uh, love Omaha. It was a wonderful place to visit, um, incredible food and very nice people. But I kind of feel like the difference is like, at least in my experience, like under those circumstances, somebody's going to help you, but they're also going to like be super friendly and be talking to you and ask you questions and blah, 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 blah. Whereas a guy in New York didn't say a word to me. Right. Mm -hmm. Didn't even mm -hmm. ask if he, if I needed help or anything, he just did it and then left. And that was it. Right. And that was, that was what made it really New York to me. Sure. You know? Sure. Sure. Not the, uh, kind of, Hey, do you need help? But hey, I'm going to help you. Yeah. I, I'm. Yeah. We're, we're doing this together. We're yeah. in this together. Yeah, yeah. 
kind of the community that you kind of stepped into or walked into. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So, uh, you're in the, uh, the program. Uh, how long is this program in, uh, the master of fine arts program in, uh, New York? Well, that, that was, a, in- that was a regular master's program that kind of segued into a PhD program, but I, I only made it about a year and a half. And I realized that it was just not a field of study that I was interested in pursuing, you know? So this was the mid nineties and cinema studies was really dominated by a kind of Marxist Lacanian take on what you were doing when you did film studies. And it just wasn't my thing, right? I just, I didn't really find that particular approach very appealing. And I was much more interested in film practice and film history than I was in this kind of theorizing project. There was an anecdote that kind of struck me. So, you know, the main reason I chose that program was because Annette Michelson uh, was teaching there. And she was someone I really admired, who was a a critic and historian of uh, the American experimental film. Um, And I was really bluntly less interested in most of the other people in the program, although a lot of them were very interesting scholars. And, you know, I totally respect them. It just wasn't why I was going. Anyway, uh, Annette Michelson was teaching a seminar class on uh, American experimental film, maybe 15 students or something in the class. And on the first day of the class, she sort of went around the room and asked everyone why they were taking that particular seminar. And all the people in the class kept, you know, saying like how interested they were in American experimental filmmaking. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, you know, I've been to every single relevant film program in New York City in the last six months or whatever it was. And the one thing I haven't seen at any of those programs is you, (laughs) right? And those are the only places you're going to see this kind of stuff. So this is a kind of abiding interest that doesn't seem to be reflected in your actual daily practice. And what was interesting about it, what those people meant was they were interested in reading about the films and what Mm -hmm. certain kind of theorists had to say about them. They weren't really so interested in actually watching the movies. And for me, I was, you know, in the program in the first place because I was interested in film practice and in the experience of of movies and not so much the experience of reading critical theory and Lacanian analysis. Um, and, and so that for me was a really I was, it was a kind of a, a kind of a wake up moment where I realized this probably isn't a great fit for me and my interests. So I left the program and ended up just running uh, like a week, I ran a weekly film series uh, focused on experimental and, and amateur film in New York City called the Robert Beck Memorial Cinema with my friend Bradley Eros for several years, making movies, you know, programming stuff, showing stuff at various places, and then writing for a range of different um, magazines, including uh, Film Comment, uh, Cineasts, um, you know, uh, the original online version of the New Republic, <laughs> uh, um, as well as other venues for a while, um, before eventually going to law school in, okay. in 2002. So, 2002. So that was, uh, you, you kind of part ways with the program in 99, 2000. Is that about right? Yeah. I think I, I think I dropped out of the program and like December of 98, roughly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then work kind of some odd jobs here and there, kind of passion projects, it sounds like. Yeah, I worked mo- mostly as like kind of a part-time uh, film projectionist at Anthology. And then also I briefly had like a PR position, like selling videotapes at uh, at Kino International, which is a film distributor. I also worked at the Filmmakers Co-op 
as like a film program, like a film processor, as it were, like, you know, basically dealing with like uh, shipping and that kind of stuff at the filmmakers co-op. We were just kind of segueing from the uh, film program, master's program you were in uh, to the shift uh, to kind of working, doing some odd jobs to going into the legal profession uh, and, and law school starting there. How, how does that happen? How, do, how does someone go from uh, make that leap? Yeah, I mean, so it was kind of accidental. It's a bit of a weird, embarrassing story. But actually, my, my girlfriend at the time had been talking about going to law school for a long time. And so I thought I was doing her a big favor when I went out and bought a bunch of LSAT practice books. <laughs> I was like, president? It's not like, we're going to do it. You're going to study and go to law school. And she was notably unenthusiastic. about the project but um it just so turned out that like you know i was you know uh, as i started doing the studying and i i went out and looked at the harvard like summer reading lists for prospective law students and got a bunch of the books and read them and i was like ah this could actually be kind of interesting um so by you know the long and the short of it is i you know took the lsat did reasonably well and was like hey why not you know law school seems like it could be good uh, and so I went, you know, started, I knew I was going to go to Washington and Lee Law School. Um, and uh, basically it was because I, I didn't have any money. I didn't know why I was going to law school. And I just figured I'd go to the, the best school I got into that didn't cost anything. And that turned out to be Washington and Lee. And I was uh, actually standing in line waiting to uh, <laughs> waiting to register when I got a phone call from Georgetown and it was the admissions office saying, hey, um, you said you didn't come to Georgetown because we didn't offer you a scholarship. If we gave you a scholarship, would you come? As so I stepped out of line, walked to the dean's office and said, sayonara, I'm off to uh, Washington, D.C., going to Georgetown now. Um, and so I was actually sitting at my, um, my, so I went to stay with some family friends. Uh, my mom's college roommate and her, and her husband who lived in DC again, while I was looking for, for an apartment. And, uh, it just so happened that the husband was the business editor of the Washington post. So I told him this story about what had happened. He said, Oh, well, you know, I'm working on a story about, you know, like economics, of higher education. Do you mind if I use this anecdote and i was like yeah i mean i guess no problem okay so well, can i use your name i was like man no skin off my back buddy you know have my, be, be my guest you know be, sure. it. so like three weeks later front page of the business section of the washington post the lead is brian fry was standing in washington the lead when you get the call from georgetown saying you know if you we have a scholarship for you you have an hour to decide um so you know this was like 2002 and you know that law school was different back then admissions was different back then and that was kind of something that wasn't done and certainly wasn't something that people talked about and so uh they were not very happy with me <laughs> washington washington, well, washington sure. Lee kind of was able to do with it the people at georgetown were not thrilled to find themselves on the front page of the local newspaper looking a little predatory um but uh yeah so that kind of was a funny moment um, you know, these days, of course, students bargain over, you know, quote unquote scholarships. I call them discounts, but, you know, students bargain over that kind of stuff all the time. But, you know, in the early 2000s, people were much more cagey and, you know, it was a little gauche to sort of talk about that kind of stuff. Um, so that was a funny moment. And then, you know, after I finished my first year at Georgetown, uh, my girlfriend at the time was still living in, in New York. 
And uh, I told her that I would put in for a transfer uh, to move back up there, not knowing whether or not that was like something realistic. And, you know, I was living in New York for the summer, uh, working and doing, you know, little odd related law jobs and uh, ended up getting a yes from NYU to transfer. So I did my second and third year of law school. Well, let's back up just a little bit. So that first year, uh, my experience is that first year is just absolutely terrible. Uh Like it's awful. Mm. Like you're learning how to think, you're learning how to juggle things. Mm. Uh, You were in a new city. Mm. Could you just describe kind of not only that process, but while you were in the classes, what you found interesting, what you found kind of crossed over from your previous experiences, what you were good at, what you hated, uh, what, what was, uh, what was kind of that first year like for you? Yeah. Well, I really, I loved legal writing. Um, that okay. was like probably my, my best experience kind of class wise. And for me, that was really just a wonderful opportunity to kind of practice expressing myself in a new format. And I really like the clarity of legal writing. I mean, coming from a humanities background, I mean, for better or for worse, a lot of that writing is um, almost ostentatiously, ostentatiously abstruse. And I really like the way that in, you know, legal writing encourages a certain kind of directness and clarity that I found really refreshing. Um, in terms of class content, I mean, you know, there was a legal philosophy class that was taught by one of the Jesuit professors at, uh, at Georgetown. I really enjoyed that class a lot. Um, you know, he's really interested in Thomas Aquinas. And so he spent a lot of time talking about natural law and this kind of thing. I found that really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the best experience though, was I had kind of a telling one for me too. It's like, I, you know, had civil procedure my first semester, which I managed to uh, equip myself in a most incredibly mediocre fashion. So it's kind of <laughs> ironic. I later became a civil procedure professor, but uh, you know, for all you students out there, I actually got a B plus in civil procedure, which is, basically the equivalent of a C. So, you know, there you have it. Right. Um, well, Professor Fry, we know grades don't matter. That's right. right? That's, right. that's right. That's right. But the, the thing I really liked about it is that the professor who taught that class, Naomi Mizzi, um, who is an absolutely delightful, wonderful person, even though she was going through a really difficult time that year, um, she asked me, kind of this very mediocre student in her class to be her research assistant on a paper she was working on, on uh, film theory in relation to legal scholarship. Um, You know, and I was both like really flattered and, you know, so it just made me feel so much, made me feel really good about myself in that moment. And, um, and later, you know, she was the person who was the first person who really said to me, I mean, of course you're going to be a law professor. Um, which had never occurred to me until she said it. Um, so, you know, that was a pretty uh, important, uh, a pretty important kind of person in my life who made a really big impact on me. Well, that has to be hugely impactful for someone to say, hey, this is your identity. And now you're going to grow into that identity. Yeah. Like I, I see, I see the finish line and I'm going to help you get there. Like that, that's huge, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was also kind of seeing a possibility that had never occurred to me. Right. I mean, and I think that that's true for a lot of people, Um, you know, especially people who don't have, you know, who don't have lawyers in their background or certainly don't have academia in their personal background. It's really hard to see yourself becoming a legal scholar um, or even to conceptualize that as a possibility. And so having someone kind of make that seem real to me was was huge and made a really big difference because it just didn't even occur to me that I could 
do that. And, you know, and it was funny too, because like, I mean, I assumed as a law student that all of my classmates were out there, you know, reading law review articles in their leisure time and thinking about ideas for law review, like ideas for papers and kind of like approaching law in that way. And it wasn't until many years later as a law professor that I realized that, well, maybe not all my classmates were doing that. <laughs> Uh, I can tell you as a current thrill that not too much has changed <laughs> over the last uh, 20 years, um, but neither here nor there. Uh, so did you, did you, were you able to ever follow up and ask her like, Hey, why did, uh, why did you choose me? Why did, what, did you see something in me? Was there something that kind of made you think, Hey, this is, this is the guy. Well, sure. So Naomi and I are, are, are friends now. Um, like, weird. And, and that's a weird thing too. It's like to go from being a student to being up here, I still feel like a student in some ways, although I know on another level that I'm, I should be thinking of myself more as, as a peer. Um, but, you know, I think the reality is that she's one of those really rare, hopefully not that rare, but to some degrees rare professors who really just sees people for who they are and is really paying attention to her students, you know? And so, you know, I mean, I think that she had a similar response to a lot of other people. And I know that she's offered encouragement to other people who she saw potential, not, not just for legal academia, but for other things as well. Okay. Uh, so the first year um, you go, you finish that up, do sounds like pretty good. And then uh, get some kind of odd jobs uh, the summer in New York, end up transferring to NYU. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you finish out those last two years? Did you kind of take, uh, what? how did you decide which classes you wanted to take? Oh, uh, so at NYU, I took nothing but legal history classes um, because that's what I was really interested in. Um, so I took every legal history class they offered. That was usually two or three a semester. Um, I did have a job at Sullivan and Cromwell. So I took like securities regulation and corporations because I felt like I was kind of need that for the purpose of my actual job but i never took any of like the regular law classes so like evidence no trust in the states no tax <laughs> no <laughs> none of those wow um, yeah not a single one in fact i have the dubious distinction of never having currently never having really taken any of the classes that i teach so I didn't take a single intellectual property related class at NYU, uh, although that's what I teach now. And um, I didn't really even take professional responsibility. I took like a special seminar class for um, professional responsibility for criminal defense lawyers, <laughs> okay. which I had no right. intention of being a criminal defense lawyer, but it just looked like an interesting class. So we didn't learn any of the normal PR related stuff. It was much more kind of focused on the kinds of uh, uh, responsibility issues that would uh, that would confront a criminal attorney, rather than the kinds that would you know, you'd normally be thinking about on the MPRE and whatnot. Um, so yeah, but you know it worked out fine. And the reality is, I think that you know, I mean, knock on wood, maybe like you know, not having had those classes as a student made me a little bit more open to sort of idiosyncratic approaches to thinking about and teaching in the areas in which I teach in right now. So not taking those classes, did you ever feel uh, like, hey, I might not be able to, uh, you know, there might be a deficiency here or I might not perform as well as on the MPRE or is there any kind of, uh, <laughs> yeah. Any kind yeah, of yeah. Stories, now, uh, stories there? So, so John Paul, I like to tell students, um, I, I'm happy to a- offer advice about what to do. That advice is usually based on my having totally fucked it up myself. Um, <laughs> sure. So when I graduated from from law school, 
had lined up two clerkships, uh, one in the Washington State Supreme Court and one in the Ninth Circuit. And so I figured, you know, I did the bar exam and everything and passed the bar in New York. And I figured, well, you know, I'm not going to bother filling out all the forms and going, jumping through all the hoops to actually join the bar, including take the MPRE, because, you know, what the hell, right? I mean, I don't need to be a member of the bar while I'm clerking. So that's just a waste of time and energy. I'll do what I'm done, you know, before I start. Sure. As an ESO, I was very proud of myself, this kind of very, you know, um, you know, efficient approach to this uh, decision. I, I arrived at, in Washington State, and uh, the secretary, Sylvia Campbell, says to me, Oh, Brian, so, you know, um, what state are you a member of the bar in? I'm like, Well, I'm not a member of any bar because I don't need to be, and why bother doing that before, you know, before I actually have to go into practice? He's like, Well, you know, that's really a shame because they'd pay you so much more money if you were a member of the bar. It's like, Oh, no. <laughs> so, word of the lies. Join the bar because it will increase your pay scale, even if you're clerking. Um, so then I, then I had to go and take the MPRE, which I hadn't done before. I signed myself up for the MPRE, started doing this clerking job, and I was really enjoying it. Really had a fun time clerking and you know, researching and writing stuff for the judge. And one afternoon, I think it was a Friday morning, I was like, ah, you know, I signed up for the MPRE. When was that? It turned out it was the next day in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> right. So okay. I had to print off like an MPRE study guide and uh, take a bus up to Seattle from Olympia. And so I spent about an hour and a half in a bar the night before the MPRE, like reading through the study guide. <laughs> that was studying for the MPRE. Um, so, yeah. you know, I, not a course of study I'd particularly recommend. But um, I guess it. But you I guess it worked out. Crushed it. Yeah. Well, yeah I, don't you, you about, I don't know about crushed it. I mean, I think that I think the smart money says that any uh, any score you get higher than the passing score on the bar of the MPRE is just evidence that you spent too much time studying. Yeah, there's no room on the scorecard for comments, yeah, that's right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, well, so fascinating. Uh, graduate law school, get through the clerkship. Was there any uh, any aspirations to be a career clerk? Did you want to kind of continue down that road or uh, your previous experience kind of wanted to lead you towards uh, being a law professor? Well, no, so I, mean, I, I really enjoyed clerking. I never really considered like a career doing that. Um, actually wrote my first like published law review article while I was clerking uh, on the Ninth Circuit for Judge Kleinfeld. Um, and it was like a kind of historical piece about uh, United States v. Miller, the early 1930s uh, Second Amendment case. And uh, but I already had a job lined up at Sullivan and Cromwell doing doing litigation there. So that was sort of like the the plan: go back to New York, work at Sullivan and Cromwell for a little while. And you know, while I was at Sullivan, that first law review article I wrote ended up getting cited. <laughs> by Justice Scalia in his uh, opinion in Heller. And so that was like a big to-do, ta-da-da. And I mean, honestly, it was probably helpful in terms of landing a professor job. At least the article got, mm -hmm. got some attention. And so I was at Sullivan for about two and a half years. And then, um, and then I quit and took a job as a, uh, well, initially a kind of a contract position teaching legal writing at a Hofstra University Law School. And then after that first semester of teaching legal writing, they needed someone to teach civil procedure. So they transitioned me into a kind of podium, uh, podium filler, <laughs> uh, doctrinal teaching job. So I okay. taught uh, civil procedure and then I also taught a nonprofit organizations and uh, art law seminar class. So I was there for a couple of years teaching and then got the job at University of Kentucky. 
any any kind of issues or any kind of uh, uh, anxieties about going into a doctrinal professional professorship role after you know after that amount of time between law school and kind of going back or was it like, Hey, you know, this is just one more thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, honestly it was like, there was a lot going on at that moment and I just kind of didn't have a choice. And I think it's one of those things. It's real sink or swim. You know, I mean, I didn't find out I was going to be teaching civil procedure until the end of the summer. And it was like time to get started. Right. So I just, you know, I was like, well, I haven't really thought about a lot of this stuff kind of, programmatically since I was in law school many years ago. And I actually didn't do that well in civil procedure, which I, again, I found kind of hilarious. Um, but really it was just about like, okay, let's figure out what I need to teach and get started and see what I can do. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure it was pretty rough that first couple of years, but you know, you get your, you get your feet wet and you figure it out, and, you know, you get better at it with, with time, you know, and it, w- it was a weird moment, you know, it was like, I had, um, recently met, uh, Penny Lane and we were actually working on a feature film together at that time while I was teaching at, at Hofstra. Um, so it was kind of just a really busy time in my life and I had a lot of stuff going on. So, you know, I just kind of flew by the seat of my pants and made it happen. Sure. And how many, uh, how many years were you at Hofstra before uh, Kentucky that came calling? Two and a half years. So that first semester teaching legal writing. And then uh, I had a year teaching doctrinal classes as I went on the job market. And then they hired me on for a second year teaching the same classes again uh, while I was on the job market. So I finished up at, uh, finished up to Hofstra, finished that year, and then moved to Kentucky that following summer. It taught Civ uh, Pro, is that right? Yeah, Civil Procedure. Uh, so I was a full year class at Hofstra, and I again I, I taught the same Civil Procedure when I started at Kentucky. Um, only transitioned to teaching professional responsibility a couple of years ago. Okay, and then uh, so while you're at Kentucky, is this kind of where you find your groove in the IP uh, world and? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I didn't start teaching intellectual property till I came to the University of Kentucky um, because the person who previously had been teaching it was was retiring. Um, but uh, yeah, so I wasn't really writing in the area and I hadn't taught in the area at all when I started this job. Um, but uh, it's definitely been the mainstay for my scholarship so far. I mean, I write a lot of different areas, but um, kind of a lot of it centers around intellectual property and especially copyright related issues. Although I'm really interested in moving into doing some more trademark related work as well. Uh, well, uh, and that was in, uh, when, when was your first year at the university of Kentucky? Oh man, I believe it was 2012. Okay. Uh, so about, about eight years. Yeah. Ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, fantastic. Is there anything else, uh, Anything, any other funny stories or anything you want to tell here? <laughs> oh, too many, too many funny stories, but many of them probably should not be immortalized. <laughs> sure. Hey. On a podcast. I got to, you know, Fair enough. <laughs> even a troll, yeah. even a troll has to watch himself every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Um, well, I tell you what, uh, any advice for anyone considering uh, law school or going into academia or what, what would you tell? Mm. I guess if you could go back and talk to yourself one L year mm. uh, or that summer while you're preparing for the bar, what would you tell yourself uh, it, based on your experiences? Oh, wow. I mean, myself, I have no idea. Right. I mean, I, I think that I think that, like my choices have always been a little idiosyncratic. And I think, you know, I have the benefit of 
a lot of privilege that allowed me to make choices that I think might not be available to other people. But I, you know, I think for law students, the main thing I tell people who are considering law school is, you know, for better or for worse, you really, really, really need to spend some time practicing the LSAT because it's a very learnable test. And I think as I've seen in, you know, working in an admissions committee and whatnot, I think a lot of students just, you know, don't prioritize that as much as would ultimately, sadly, really benefit them. I'm not defending the test or the test as a way of evaluating law students, but it's the reality. And, you know, you're really doing yourself a disservice if you don't focus on it. Um, as a law student, I think, you know, just ignoring the weird social dynamics of law school and focusing on yourself and focusing on learning, um, I think that's really the key. Um, if you come out of law school or as you spend your time in law school focused on learning things and, um, and on the ideas that are being um, that are being discussed and that you're sort of being asked to engage with in class, I think you'll get a lot more out of it than if you focus on competing and if you focus on the kind of internal social dynamics of, of the class. Um, for me, it was helpful that I was a little older when I started, and I think that's true for a lot of older students, but I think anyone can sort of, um, if they put their mind to it, really kind of focus on themselves and on their own project rather than on what's happening around them. Um, when it comes to academia, I mean, uh, you know, I think it would be great if more law students saw academia as a possibility. Unfortunately, um, it is very status conscious. Um, so, you know, for people who don't go to Harvard, Yale, or Stanford, or NYU, or Columbia, or whatever, it can be a lot harder to get a teaching job. That said, I actually think that the market for legal academia has changed, for better or worse, uh, to some degree. Uh, by virtue of an increased focus on actual scholarly productivity in, as opposed to potential scholarly productivity. So, you know, like they like to say, you know, there's the LSAT is the best predictor of your first grade, first year grades in law school, but it's not as good as predictor as your actual first year grades in law school. Um, like, likewise, you know, there's a lot of proxies that schools historically used for, you know, potential productivity as a legal scholar, but none of those proxies are as good as a measure as actual productivity as a legal scholar. So I think a lot of people who don't have the kind of traditional law professor pedigree uh, are starting to find some real success by simply showing schools that they're actually already capable of being good scholars by virtue of the actual scholarship that they've produced. Um, so that's hard for people who don't have the institutional support, which a lot of schools don't necessarily provide. Um, but I think that there are other resources out there and there's a lot of people who are happy to help and offer advice. Um, so I think for a lot of, for a lot of people who have their kind of heart set on legal academia, it really can be a possibility for people for whom it might not have been in previous years. Uh, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. It takes, you know, a lot of planning. Um, but I think it is possible. And it's really all about showing, about showing the people who are looking to hire that you have what it takes to be a legal scholar. And, and, I, and there is a democratizing effect, I think, to some degree to the increasing focus on the actual work 
as opposed to just the pedigree and the potential. Well, uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, that's, uh, that's kind of all I have. Um, thanks so much. It was great. Uh, great getting to know you a little bit better. And I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to uh, come on here and, and guest host. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, John Paul. It was really fun. And uh, I look forward to posting this episode. Sounds good. Talk to you later. Ha, 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 ha.